do you know that Christians are meant to be weird? Now, when I say mean, I don't mean creepy, but or into strange things. We don't need to wear odd clothes or, or speak in like holier-than-thou voices. But I'm talking about lives that are weird in a sinful world, a world where it is normal to look out for number one first, to maximise your own pleasure and to live a life as if you rule it, to live life as if this is all that there is. We're meant to live differently. We're meant to live lives that show that we have been graciously saved by God. Lives that point to Jesus as our sure and certain hope. Lives that love God and love others because this life is not all that there is. Lives that are weird. And it's actually a good thing when this happens. When Christians are caring for the sick and dying at personal risk, campaigning against the slave trade, hiding Jews in their home to keep them safe, putting aside their own comfort to reach lost people with the gospel. And it's a real shame when Christians live just like everyone else. We're going to see today that we are to be different as we love God. First, let me pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, Lord, let us hear from you. Let us hear from your word. Lord, I pray that I'll be able to speak clearly your truth and that you'll be preparing all of us uh, to hear what you have to say through your word today. Amen. It's been a little while since we've been in Deuteronomy. Uh, We were last here in October, so if you don't remember, it's okay. Uh, So let's recap chapters 1 to 11. Uh, Deuteronomy is a series of three sermons delivered by Moses to the Israelites. They were supernaturally rescued out of Egypt, but they had rebelled against Moses and God. God had showed them the good land that he had prepared for them. The 12 spies went in and observed the land to report back, and it indeed was a good land, but the people living there were huge, and they lived in fortified cities. In just the last few months, God had miraculously sent 10 plagues to the Egyptians while keeping his people safe. God allowed for their escape, opening up the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry land and use that same sea to wipe out the pursuing Egyptian army. And then the people encountered God from the foot of the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. God had been leading them through the pillar of smoke and of fire, leading them to the edge of this promised land. But despite all this, despite all that God had done for them, they didn't trust God and they feared the people living in Canaan over God. And so they were turned around and punished by spending 40 years wandering around in the desert. All the people who rejected the land have now died and this new generation has risen up. Before they go into the land, Moses is here, reminding them of what has happened, explaining why they are here. He warns them to obey. He explains God's laws and commandments. He tells them the consequences of disobedience and the benefits of obedience. What it looks like to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. In summary, 
Deuteronomy is about how God has called his people to live life with the living God. Now, if you've missed any of the sermons, they are on the website. You can go in and listen to them in more detail. But here we are at chapter 12. Moses starts now getting into the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to love God and to love others. We're going to see that for the Israelites, sorry, starting here with the people learning to love God, what does it actually mean in the day-to-day? We're going to see that for the Israelites and for us, because God has saved us. We love God by living different, holy lives that remember and rejoice in his rescue and reflect his holiness. God's people aren't meant to live God's people are meant to live different in every part of their lives. Different by being holy and different by remembering and rejoicing in God's rescue. We're, we're going to skim through these chapters a bit. So if you have any questions uh, or things I've skipped over or glossed, then uh, please come and, and chat to me afterwards. But as we fly through these chapters, we're going to see five ways that as we live for God, we are called to be different, to be holy. But before we do, let me say something about this word, holy. God's people are meant to live holy lives. It comes up again and again, but it's a very churchy word. What does it mean? Well, the word holy simply means set apart, different, separate. It starts with God. As the creator, he is separate from his creation, set apart utterly different. He's in a different category. He does not depend on us to live. He doesn't need his creation. You can't touch God by touching the grass or the trees or God made these things and so they reflect who he is but he is separate from them. He is also separate from evil. There is no sin in God. Nothing untoward or disgusting or horrible. That doesn't mean that there are some things that we will find confronting. But in all that he is, he is perfectly good. He is holy, separate from any evil or sin. God's people are called to be holy because we have been rescued by this holy God, to be his people. We live in relationship with him. We can't be separate from creation like God is, but we are to be separate from sin, to be set apart, to live in a way that reflects our holy God, to live differently. So when you hear the word holy, think different, set apart, think separate from sin. We're going to work through these chapters pretty quickly, so I grab you, encourage you to grab your Bibles, open them up. Um, if you don't have one, there are some up, up on the back table as well, but the key verses will be up on the slides as well. The first point, God's people worship different. The Canaanites who were already in the land aren't one unified nation like Israel. They're a bunch of city-states and they worship heaps of different gods in different ways. And it makes sense they have their places of worship everywhere, on tops of hills, in groves of trees, everywhere. But God's people are supposed to worship different. Look in chapter 12, verse 3. 
You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the Lord, the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Israel is one people who worship God who is one. We read that back in chapter 6, and so it's fitting that they worship in one place, that they are to tear down all these other places. And their worship will look different. Briefly flick down to verse 30. Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every, every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God's people don't participate in child sacrifice or temple prostitution or cutting or evil rituals, not like the Canaanites did. And their worship is very different. And actually, it's very simple too. Back in verse 6, they are to go to one place that God chooses and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord God has blessed you. It's pretty simple. They bring all their offerings and their sacrifices to the place that God chooses, and they feast and rejoice together before God. They enjoy together the good things that God has given them, This kind of worship isn't to earn God's favour, nor is it simply just a response to the blessing that God has given his people. This is part of the blessing. God's people together in rich relationship with each other and with God, coming before their God, who is... Sorry. Coming before their God, who they love and who has rescued them to rejoice and to celebrate together, to enjoy everything that he has given them. This isn't some stodgy, formal, dreary thing. It is feasting and rejoicing together as God's people in relationship with God. It is something rich and beautiful. God's one people in relationship with him and with each other, rejoicing with what he has given them. So God's people are meant to worship different. All through Deuteronomy, we've seen how this book isn't just for the Israelites. It's for us too. It shows us what God looks like. And it's part of the foundation of the whole Old Testament. And it points us to Jesus. It shows us what it looks like for us to live for him. And this is true here too. Our God is one God worthy of consistent and faithful worship. Loving him and living as his people means coming to him in a way that he chooses, not in the way that we want. The Israelites failed miserably at this. 
They did establish the one place of worship, but they never properly got rid of the other places. Even King Solomon, who built the temple in Jerusalem, he established other places of worship on hills nearby for his foreign wives. It happened again and again. And so Israel was judged. God sent them out of the land that he had given them into exile. Out of the land, and eventually he brought them back to the land. And this time they took it more seriously, but they still fell short. Until Jesus. Jesus said that a time was coming where his people would not worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. He said that he would establish the temple, sorry, he would demolish the temple and raise it in three days. But he wasn't talking about a physical building. He was talking about his own body. Jesus, God the Son, came to establish a new way to come to God, not through a building, but through him. True worship is is centred not on the temple, but on Jesus. Because of his death for our sins and the resurrection from the dead. He is the only way for sinful people like you and like me to come to God. That's how our worship is different. It's not through a single building. It's not by a pilgrimage. It's not even through church. It's through Jesus. Relationship with him by faith. It's the only way for us to come to God in true worship. It means that all of our lives are spent in worship as we both individually and collectively together as God's people rejoice in what God has done and give back to him out of all that he has given us. God's people worship different. God's people also love different. If the people are going to love God by living different holy lives, then they need to love God first when people try to lead them astray. That's what chapter 13 is all about. First, Moses warns them about religious leaders who might lead them astray. Uh, From verse 1, actually I'll read the last bit of chapter 12 as well. Uh, Everything that I command you, be careful to do, and you shall not add to it or take from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he does comes to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Impressive, miraculous signs aren't a sure sign that a message is from God. These prophets and dreamers are trying to lead people away from following the Lord to worship other gods. But the people are to love different. Not to love and be impressed by showy signs, but to love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. To follow him only and to reject these false teachers. In fact, in verse 5, Moses says that these false religious leaders should be put to death for seeking to lead the people astray. But it's Moses' next example that gets really challenging. It might be one thing for a religious leader that is trying to lead you away, but it's something else if it's someone closer to you. Maybe a brother or one of your children or your husband or your wife or your closest friend. Even then, God's people are to love different. 
to love the Lord even more than their own family. Like with these false religious leaders, the maximum penalty for this is death, verse 10. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This seems absolutely shocking to us. But remember, this is about God's people loving God and living in the land that he gave them. This is a covenant relationship with the Lord. He is their God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. They are to be faithful to him. To turn away from him and to follow other gods is like treason. It's like adultery. It is rejecting the God who has saved them, rejecting the God who is life. And this is our God too. Our God who has saved us by sending his own son, Jesus, to die for us. Even when we we were his enemies, like Israel, we have failed to love God like this. We often love things more than him, and it doesn't take much to lead us astray. But Jesus, God's own son, perfectly follows the Lord. Even when his family tried to turn him away from his mission, he suffered and died for our rebellion against God. And through him, we can come to him. For us too, following Jesus means loving different. Jesus says that following him means loving him more than our own families. You can read about that in Luke 14. He is our highest love, our first allegiance. We don't compromise our faith because someone close to us feels uncomfortable because their life choices don't live up to the standards that our God has set out clearly in his word. We put God and his word first. And actually living that out, it means that we will actually love our families better and more fully, but never at the cost of following him. For us too, we must obey God, not men. If religious leaders, even doing impressive signs and wonders, try to lead you astray from following Jesus, if they teach things that aren't faithful to God's word, we must not listen to them. If, if I teach you something that is contrary to God's word, you must hold me to account. Now, just to be clear, we're not to put anyone to death. We're not, we're not in Old Testament Israel. These commands don't apply in, in that same way. But we must love different always being faithful to the Lord and not led astray. Third, God's people eat different. Chapter 14, verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you shall not eat any abomination. Moses now goes on to list all the animals that are clean and unclean for the Israelites to eat. This isn't a hygiene thing about which animals are safe to eat, but it is about being holy, set apart, living different from those around them. 
This isn't a way to earn God's favour. Eating the right things don't make you God's people. It's because they are already his chosen people, his treasured possession. We could spend all of our time trying to figure out the logic of why this animal and not that one. We might find out some interesting things, but at the end of the day, it is really quite simple. It's about God's people living differently to those around them, being holy. And this is actually a great lived illustration about what it looks like to live as God's people. God's people are meant to be separate from sin. Be careful to live differently to those around you because they are God's people. This doesn't just include what they can and can't eat. The second half of chapter 14 talks about the tithe, a portion of the harvest that is to be set aside to the Lord. But notice what they are to do with it in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Again, this isn't a dreary, somber ritual. This is about rejoicing together before the Lord. The next verses go on to say that if they live too far away from that central place, if it's too far to bring all their produce with them, they can sell it and use the money to buy whatever they desire to eat and drink before the Lord in rejoicing together. They eat different in what they eat and what they don't eat and in the way that they save their produce to feast before the Lord in rejoicing every year. And this is our God too the one who calls his people to live different. Even our eating and drinking is to bring glory to our God and it is to be done in rejoicing to him. We are no longer under these same food laws. But this great lived illustration of the separatedness of God's people from the uncleanness of sin was always meant to point us to Jesus. It is only through faith in him, not through what we eat or not, that we can become clean and come to God. Jesus himself declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. And Peter saw that great vision of the sheet to show not only that all foods are clean, but that all kinds of people can come to God through faith in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that our eating doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We, we aren't just gluttons who overeat and overindulge ourselves. We eat and drink with thanks to God, to his glory. That means being wise and careful with how much we eat. It means not getting drunk. It means being different in the way that we eat and drink. Not only that, but God's people are to care different. The way God's people love God by living different holy lives is not just about worshipping at the temple. Their love for God flows out, of, out into the way that they treat one another, especially those in need. And it starts with the release of debts from verse 1. 
At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbour. He shall not exact it of his neighbour, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Built into the economy of God's people, there is an opportunity for those who owe money to be freed from debt. If you are owed money, you must release it in the seventh year. And this doesn't mean that you just um, you don't lend money in the sixth year. God's people are to give freely to each other because God has given them much. God has been generous to them, so they should be generous to one another. This includes care for slaves. When we hear slavery, we might think of that 18th century human trafficking, abducting people from Africa and shipping them overseas to, to work fields and plantations to be treated harshly like objects for their entire lives. But for the Israelites, slavery was to be very different to this. It was a way to deal with bankruptcy. It was a temporary measure. And slaves were to be treated as brothers, not as property. And in the seventh year, when the master was to let the slave go free, but more than that, he was to set him up with everything that he needs to live well. Just as God did for them when he rescued them from Egypt, and the Egyptians gave the Israelites their riches on their way out. A slave could choose to stay, and and some did, but it was their choice. But notice something in the way that God's people care different. Moses says that if they obey these laws, that there will be no poor in the land, verse 4. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If, you, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. But Moses doesn't have very high hopes that they'll be able to pull this off. Straight after this, he does talk about how to care for those who are poor. And then in verse 11, he does say that there will always be poor in the land. Moses knows that God's people won't keep God's law. And so he included these laws as God's mercy to provide for those in need. Even in their sin, God shows his care for the vulnerable. Our God still cares for the vulnerable and needy. Even Jesus, God's own son, experienced this. He had nowhere to lay his head. And yet, he came to proclaim good news. In Luke 4, Jesus declares that his mission is to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. Jesus has not come to set free economic slaves, but slaves to sin. Through his death and resurrection, he has set us free if we trust in him. And because we have been set free, we are free to love others to love them with practical generosity, to care different by giving to the poor and the needy, but also to care different by caring for people's true spiritual needs, to proclaim the good news of freedom and hope in Jesus. We often fall down here. When it comes to caring for and giving generously to the needy, our job as God's people is more about more than caring for people's physical needs, but it isn't less. God cares for the needy, and we should too. 
because God's people care different. Lastly, God's people remember different. We're coming back to where we started, talking about that central place that God has set aside for his people to gather and to worship him. God's people are to travel there three times a year to rejoice and to remember and to sacrifice. There are three great festivals when God's people are to gather at that central place. First, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the people remembered how God had rescued them from Egypt. Every year the people are to reenact the Passover sacrifice to remember how God rescued them by providing for them the sacrifice of a lamb in their place. How they fled Egypt in haste, rescued from slavery to live as God's people. The second one was the Feast of Weeks. Notice again how this is about remembering God's rescue. Chapter 16, verse 10. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes." Just imagine all of God's people gathered in one place to offer to the Lord out of all of the blessings that he has given to them. To rejoice together as God's people in God's presence, praising God for all that he has done and remembering how together, how God has saved them out of Egypt, rescuing them to be his people. They are to do it again at the Feast of Booths, which is at the harvest of olives and grapes to remember and rejoice in the blessing that the Lord has given his people. This isn't dreary. This isn't a chore. This is a feast of celebration, of remembering what God has done. We too gather to remember that God has done for us, not in the Exodus, but in Jesus' death and resurrection. We gather every Sunday to praise God together and to rejoice in all that he has given. To remember how he has saved us to be his people. We remember at Christmas and Easter each year what God has done for us through Jesus, his son. And he has given us the Lord's Supper, the fulfillment of the Passover, Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. We don't reenact Jesus' sacrifice, but we do remember it together as as we proclaim his coming back. Loving God and living different, holy lives means remembering together what God has done for us in Jesus, his son. This is what it looks like to live different as God's people. Not to become God's people, But because he has saved us, we love God by living differently. We live holy lives that remember and rejoice in his rescue and reflect his holiness. Like Israel, as God's people saved through Jesus, we worship different through Jesus, God's own son. 
we follow different, loving God and following him even above family. We eat different, eating and drinking to bring glory to God. We care different, caring for the poor and for the needy, proclaiming the message of freedom in Jesus. And we remember different, rejoicing together in God's great grace to us in Jesus. Christians should be weird. We should live different, holy lives that remember, rejoice in, and reflect that great grace that we have in God. Let us live like that. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your people, that you have forgiven us through Jesus, that we have been rescued, redeemed, set free, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now part of your family. We thank you. Help us to live lives for you that are different. Help us to live every part of our lives in a different way that brings glory to you alone. Amen.